We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Rick Hansen, PhD, is a psychologist, senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at the University of California, Berkeley, and New York Times bestselling author. His books, which have been published in 28 languages, include the recently published Neurodharma, along with Resilient, Hardwiring Happiness, Just One Thing, Buddha's Brain, and Mother Nurture. He has taught in meditation centers worldwide and has shared his wisdom with organizations as varied as Google, NASA, and universities, including Oxford and Harvard. He has several online offerings, including the Neurodharma Experiential Program and his free weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for at rickhansen.net. Rick and his partner live in Northern California. They have two adult children. Unlike so many of us, Rick especially loves time in the wilderness, where he can get away from the screen. Rick, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you, Carl and Cassidy and Kevin. So we love to begin our conversation with a simple invitation to reflect on your relationship with silence. Can you tell us a little bit about how silence has been a part of your life? I love this topic. It's really fertile. (laughs) Um, And I think there are many kinds of silence, first off. uh, So it's different relationships of different silences. Uh, To begin with, reflecting on my childhood, there was a lot of noise in my family. I don't mean just loudness. There wasn't a lot of yelling, but there was a lot of talking that seemed disconnected from reality. And so I looked for opportunities to disengage from that, to find my own footing, to find an inner peace and to sort out what in the world. Here I am six years old. Here I am 15 years old what to do about it. And it is interesting that I I sought the quiet of the relative wilderness around my home in Southern California, the orange groves and then the hillsides where I was by myself typically in solitude. And that was a great refuge for me. So there's definitely that origin story. Uh, More generally, gosh, I I think of silence in terms of the absence of external noise in the simplest sense. Uh, which for me, I I really enjoy um, in the evening when it's getting quieter in the wilderness where it's relatively quiet. Uh, Then there's the internal silence where your mind gets quieter. There's less verbal activity. There's less noise there, less discordance. Also, there is um, that sense of deep stillness and quiet inside our innermost being. People can access that awareness of that. Uh, I reflect on uh, my own contemplative training, which uh, is probably centered around the the original teachings of the Buddha with some familiarity of other traditions, um, including Christian contemplative practice. Think about the apophatic kind of practices that are an emptying out into a, a vastness. 
then as a neuropsychologist, I think a lot about, uh, I don't really, well, I have thought a lot about, I say that's fairer, fertile noise. In other words, in the neural substrates of experiencing, of hearing and seeing, wanting and thinking and remembering very straightforwardly, um, those representing systems physically uh, are always active metabolically. Otherwise, they're dead. We don't want that. But so often um, in the neural substrates of our experiences, broadly our consciousness, and I mean that in a very natural kind of way, not yet referring to anything beyond the ordinary universe uh, or distinct from it, that it's through fertile noise. In effect, those neurons are firing together. They're quivering with potentiality, but they're not yet representing anything. There's not yet a percept, a perception, a sensation, a thought moving through the field. So they are effectively unconditioned, like a whiteboard or screen. They exist, they're there, but inside that frame, they are in effect silent in reference to the signal that they represent. That's pretty cool. And then ultimately, right, the ultimate transcendental vastness or the absolute utter stillness, timeless, you know, time of the ordinary Big Bang universe proceeding in my view, and experience within a transcendental timelessness. So many kinds of silence, and I have a relationship to all of them. I say last as a therapist, just the, the listening, the receptivity, the really the fullness of your presence with another person. And, and in many ways, the great gift, you know, it reminds me of the classic point that the value of a cup is the emptiness inside it in much that same way, I think the value of a good therapist is that receptive stillness inside them that, that can receive uh, the truth telling at all levels uh, of the, uh, of their client. So many avenues to go down here, Rick. I love, I love that. You mentioned the orange groves and that, that stopped me a little bit. Um, I'm wondering about silence as place or quietude as place. Has there ever been a place in your past or also your present that is a location or a place that has been representative or important for you in terms of silence or quietude? That's a beautiful reflection, Cassidy. Um, just, I've never, it's never occurred to me, the silence of place. And what I mean by that is it's sort of like, it's not so much an auditory phenomenon is that the place has a kind of stillness in it and, a, and an opening to possibility. Yeah. And at a, at a physical level, that's very cool. And, and may well have a lot of auditory silence too. Um, the desert's been really important to me. Joshua Tree National Park mm -hmm. uh, is a very special place. I've spent a lot of time there, a lot of time there, including rock climbing and including making noise, howling at the moon, camping out with my mm -hmm. friends at night. And, um, that's definitely real. Gosh, that's great. Yeah, the orange groves, the stillness amidst the trees. For me, there's something really deep. The pregnant silence of a tree. That's pretty great. I like that. Yeah, and then classics, oh. ocean. Also, I'm a sci-fi person. So one of my so kind of sort of regrets about living at this time, which I feel incredibly fortunate to have a human life at this time amidst its difficulties and still i would love to be around in ten thousand years and have my little winnebago spaceship bop around outer space <laughs> the vastness of space seems like the yeah. ultimate silence how cool would mm -hmm. that be the ultimate place 
<laughs> intergalactic space. I mean, literally, the vacuum between the galaxies is more is more empty than the emptiest vacuum that human scientists can produce so far. Wow. Rick, are you based in Marin County? Yeah. I, I know Kevin, and I'm not sure about Cassidy, although she's logged some time in California, but we are all big fans of Muir Woods. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just to go out there in that kind of, that kind of cathedral of living wood is yeah. just such, um, I think there is a profound silence that is anchored in that place that kind of resonates in those, in those, those yeah. mighty ones that watch and you mentioned the pregnant the pregnant silence you know there's a word in hebrew demia hmm. which is a word for silence it only shows up in the psalms but it always has that quality of a waiting silence the pregnant pause the silence that is filled with anticipation and with that receptivity so uh -huh. thanks for giving me some stuff to reflect on there I also like that your connection with Cassidy's question about it, it reminded me of your response of that that whiteboard right before the neurons have that pregnant pause right before there's any perceptivity there's this potentiality there's something happening there and it's as if we can experience that in a place you know like the woods or the tree or the orange groves or it's it's as if there's a physical we don't just have to, in our brain, we could actually be walking in an environment like that. Yeah. So Rick, I'm, I'm struck that you just took us to outer space in a Winnebago and I can't get that out of my head. Um, and along with that, right. We're also talking about this pregnant pause, this, this infant spaciousness in the moment, in the pause before. And at the same time, a lot of your work is science and science-based and clear and i i'm curious about that pause of imaginative freedom and how important that is to your work well the the science contextualizing is what i'm assimilating here uh distinct from more generally that that pause and and immediately one thinks of um different appreciations of that pause, like Viktor Frankl's reference to the pause between stimulus and response. Uh, uh, that's where there's that most irreducible of human freedoms. And uh, very much, uh, I think contemplative training worldwide has certain common features. And uh, I try to capture some of those common features, uh, essences really, uh, in the book when I explore these sort of seven, I think of them as buckets of training and, and development and, and wisdom. Um, and in them all, as best I know, certainly in the Buddhist tradition, there's a real emphasis on uh, the cultivation of that inner space between what's happening and our reactivity to it, you know, and, and, the, and the field of possibility. And ultimately, as you may know, um, the Buddha was really interested in what is not conditioned, because what is conditioned thus impermanent is an unreliable basis for the most sublime peacefulness, inner peace and happiness, right? So uh, how do you disengage from the conditioned wheel and uh, live more in some spaciousness that is not conditioned in that way? So we go there. But to do it in terms of scientific work, as it were, or creative work, 
I think that the, the way that shows up for me is the peril of glibness. And the peril, if, if you probably face it yourselves, of just redoing your greatest hits and kind of phoning it in or going on autopilot or just clicking through your sound bites, you know, your bullet points. And, and there's a place for that because being able to think and speak in that way is helpful, but to actually stop and hear the question and respond anew, I, I think that's one of the really beautiful things. And, and my experience of watching, I'm just thinking out loud, people who are genuinely great scientists uh, is they have that quality. They, they actually listen to you and then they consider the question anew. And they have the courage to live with that space. I also think about just a detail, a comment made about uh, Barack Obama 10 years ago when he was beginning to run for president from a semi-critical, uh, I think, I forget who it was, might've been Peggy Noonan, perhaps. She said, disagree with him on policy, blah, blah, blah. Got to give him credit, though. When people ask him questions, he's not a typical politician where he just goes on autopilot with a canned answer. You can actually feel him thinking and listening and responding in an alive way. And I, I think that's a beautiful characteristic there. That answer is so wonderful to hear. I, I wouldn't have made that connection. I really appreciate that answer because you, your response was a really good scientist Right. I mean, you didn't say it that way. I'm going to, these are my words, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. A really good scientist is not going to get caught in the jargon or the hypothesis or whatever they think they're going to see. The really good scientist is sitting there going, what's going to happen? What, what is what? And asking the question and actually waiting for the response. They might've gotten the same response a million times, but they should be excited about a million and one. And, and that is a fabulous answer because I think not only does that show tremendous um, respect to science, it also shows tremendous respect to those, uh, to the process and to the person and to the system and to, mm. and to all of life that you're engaging. It's just so wonderful. And that makes me think about, so you've already mentioned your book. I'd like to turn to the book a little bit. So you basically have a subtitle, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. So how, do you, how did you discover this idea that science and ancient wisdom can be woven together? Well, I'm not sure I discovered it. Um, <laughs> and others have definitely taken a, a swing at this territory uh, besides me. Um, in the book itself, essentially, I'm interested at a personal level and also in terms of interest in it as a topic, distinct from the impact on myself as an individual in this life, I'm really interested in what the heck is enlightenment? What is the ultimate possibility? We can approach it through the frame that's, let's call it theistic, God realization, sainthood, salvation. What is that actually lived in this world, really? the ultimate. And much as with any domain, I think it's common to be interested in what's going on with someone or what makes someone capable of doing anything at a very high level. I, I find that excellence, mastery in any domain is deeply interesting. I don't care what it is. Like I, the last time I was ever on a motorcycle, I was 15 years old. 
And yet I love looking at these big Harley Davidson's hogs, like, wow, it's like the perfection of a form. And then people are really into them. How cool is that? So, and lately we're watching a TV series on uh, Michael Jordan, you know, in the Chicago Bulls, The Last Dance and like, okay. So in my case, I'm interested in enlightenment, if, you know, the, the, the ultimate possibilities for a human being. What is that? described as so let's say if we were to describe it in terms of certain core attributes steadiness of mind lovingness of heart emotional balance a sense of contentment and fullness already a, a sense of wholeness everything included really rested in a feeling of being through which doing is occurring in the present moment absolutely present at the front edge of now routinely while feeling interdependently connected with everything a local expression of the whole universe, one with everything, on the edge of mystery, on the edge of timelessness, you know, engaging with and feeling permeable to unconditionality while living a conditioned life. Like these, you know, so I've just done the seven key themes of my book as a way of talking about, uh, including the last one, which might have the greatest interest for you all, given your own interest in, in Christian practice, that sense of permeability with the divine, how, while living in the, in the natural, engaged with that which is transcendental. So then we work backwards, I think. We were, how do you do that, right? And one way to answer that question of how do you help yourself move in that direction, if that's of interest to you, and it's of great interest to me and to many others, I think, how do you move in that direction? Well, we can explore that psychologically in terms of our mental activities including prayerful activities, including personal practices. Uh, let's say in Buddhism, there are these three pillars of practice that my friend who's a minister of Christian contemplative practice has told me you also find in Christian contemplative practice, different names, but the three are virtue, sometimes translated as morality or restraint. Second, mental training, concentration, uh, deep contemplative absorption, and wisdom. So you find those three. Well, so we could explore the cultivation of those psychologically through the lens of modern science in the last 50 years, especially the last 10 years, we can begin to consider what is going on in the body, in our own biology, in our neurology, in our brains, while we are experiencing and or cultivating virtue, concentration, and wisdom, as well as other things we might care about. And so to me, it's such a natural fit. If we really want to honor uh, the, the, the body-mind process, mind-body, right? Or in Hindu, nama and rupa, or I don't know what the psyche and soma, <laughs> something like that. They go together. They interdependently co-arise and causes and factors flow in both directions. It uh, doesn't mean reducing consciousness to some clockwork automaton. And so uh, that just seemed really straightforward to me somehow, you know, like, of course. And, and for me as a personal practitioner, it's incredibly fertile to be able to go back and forth from the third person perspective, outside in of science, um, uh, objective as it were, and then move into the first person subjective experiential perspective and to go back and forth between the two. It just seems so useful somehow. Doesn't it seem useful to you? <laughs> yes, yes. Oh yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. Like, and, and, 
I'll, I'll hop on because as as you know, several of us are very much interested in the Buddhist Christian dialogue. Yeah. But those those three principles or pillars that you mentioned, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, where my mind went was purification, illumination, and union, right. which is kind of the classic kind of itinerary of Christian mm-hmm. contemplative practice. Mm-hmm. You know, the purification of that, that establishment of, yeah, right behavior, mm-hmm. of virtue, you know, holiness, if you will, moving into the illumination, which in, in Greek is theoria, you know, that, that concentration, that, that, that pure okay. basking in the divine presence, and then wisdom, a theosis, mm-hmm. deification, that recognition that I and God are not two that, you know, that all those boundaries just simply fall away. And back to your comment, you know, that the universe is present right here. That, yeah. that is a classic kind of theosis mm-hmm. statement. So I just see, I see so many echoes and parallels right. there. This is really, really beautiful. I appreciate it so much. So I'm curious, mm-hmm. the, yeah, I'm, I'm in Atlanta. And so of course I'm, I'm in the shadow of Emory University where the Dalai Lama has been working with the contemplative studies program. Right. And I, I love to tell the story, you know, they, they paid me $50 to come and meditate for them one time, you know? And so I walked in and they put all the wires on my head, you know, oh, really? a couple, couple of grad students in white coats, you know, and they had their monitors on. So they leave, you know, and turn out the lights. And I just sit there. And of course, because I'm a Christian, my practice is a centering prayer practice. So I kind of do my practice for 20 minutes and then they come back in, they look at the monitor. It was a man and a woman and the man turns to the woman and he says, wow. And I said, (laughs) wow, what? And he wouldn't tell me. So I figure I am either an advanced uh, master or I am just the crappiest meditator in the world. (laughs) (laughs) How long ago was this? When did this happen? Oh, probably five or six years ago now. Yeah. Well, first, you're still alive. So that's a good sign. It wasn't like (laughs) registering EEG evidence of a brain tumor or something. That's good. (laughs) No, that was good news. I, I think it was a positive. Well, it also goes to, you know, you have a lot of practice. And it leaves traces behind in the living body. Right, right. I mean, I, I, I do. Um, my area is, is a lot of Buddhist Christian stuff, and specifically when I was doing my doctoral res, uh, research and stuff, it was all on brain. It was interesting because yeah. I do philosophical, so it was much more theoretical, and it wasn't the brain science. But I was mm. reading a lot of brain science, and yeah. so that's kind of the area because I'm doing epistemology, and it's exactly what you're saying. These People who have been doing it for long periods of time, they're finding that it leaves yeah. some kind of mark afterwards, you know. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence. But I guess my question, Rick, is that, you know, this is, you know, you, you said this is an auspicious time to be alive. And I, I certainly agree with you, despite all the challenges that we, we are presented with. 
I think we're, we're presented with tremendous opportunity as well. But this conversation between the Dharma and science or between the Christian contemplative tradition and science or the Christian contemplative tradition and the Dharma and science, you know, these, these are, are emerging, arising conversations that we didn't have a hundred years ago. How do you think this is going to change the way Buddhism and science approaches this question of what is a hap what is the highest happiness? What is a good life? What is a happy life? What is an enlightened mm -hmm. life? What, what do you see moving forward from all of this? Well, it's interesting. First, uh, there's certain topics I feel legitimately, uh, there is some expertise about them. And others, I, I'm more like an interested amateur. I'm, I'm a guy at the end of the bar, you know, with, a, with an opinion. It just seems to me that there's only one ultimate matter, whatever that is. There's, there are different ways of talking about it, but there's really, there is the ultimate. And uh, that's, that's, you could say, common to us all. And then there's the human body. You shaped by three and a half billion years of biological evolution, 600 million years of nervous system evolution, 300,000 years as anatomically modern humans, another 2 million years of hominid tool manufacturing relatives. Brain has tripled in volume in the last several million years. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. You know, what a long, strange trip it's been. So we have the common ultimate and we have the common body. So I think as people progress in their practice, they converge in their qualities uh, as they approach the pinnacle of human possibility. And I'm reminded of the opening line from Anna Karenina that all happy families are alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. In other words, as you converge on happiness as a family or you converge on enlightenment or really, really very far along in practice. And you can feel it around these people. I, I know people who are farther along than I am. And you, um, our son went to a meditation retreat uh, with some local, um, at a local monastery in Ukiah, actually, uh, when he was 16. And he was a sports guy, very skeptical of this airy-fairy dad woo-woo stuff. And he came back and uh, you may know the, an honorific for people, mon monastics in the Theravadan tradition is Ajahn. A-J-A-H-N, Ajahn Soma, so Ajahn Amaro, Ajahn Pasano, for example. And as it turned out, a teenage girl on their trip sprained her ankle in the woods there. And so Forrest went with her as a friend, along with the abbot of the monastery, Ajahn Pasano, with his shaved head, bright orange robes, into a community hospital in a very sort of redneck area of Northern California, just hanging out in the ER for, you know, four or five hours with this girl. And when Forrest came back, he kind of debriefed the whole thing. And he said, you know, dad, those Ajahns have game. <laughs> so we can have a sense of people up there. So you kind of converge. So I think, you know, whether it's um, a longtime Buddhist practitioner, a longtime Christian uh, practitioner, deeply engaged in spiritual formation, um, uh, whether Sufi, uh, a really, really deeply trained secular mindfulness person or someone coming from the first people indigenous traditions around the world really any they, they seem very alike so I'm I, th I think that's some of what's happening I mean obviously there are pitfalls around the so-called perennial wisdom stuff and trying to 
forge some unified synthesis of it all. But I'm, I think there's the, there's a coming together, not a deal about it. Um, I will say this as the guy at the end of the bar and amateur about all this, a friend of mine, um, Sylvia Borstein, a Buddhist teacher, she said she's been to a lot of these sort of interfaith conferences and she finds a lot of the discourse sort of arid. And what she's really interested in is what people do when they practice and why they do what they do when they practice and what the fruits are. And as soon as you're into that conversation, it's really useful and deeply interesting. Yeah. So speaking of Rick, I kind of have a two-part question actually. What would you say and or suggest to an absolute beginner in, ter in terms of integrating practice? And along with that, could you tell us a little bit about your own practice? Um, I think uh, first, tell the truth about your suffering. Mm. why are you I doing mean, we, it? we could stay there for a long time right Many yeah people could yeah, yeah yeah and to need to be resourced enough to kind of tell the truth like why are you doing it you know well i'm i'm stressed i'm rattled i or i feel there's a longing in me for something more that i know is true but i'm not really living it um you just start start there not not in a big three years of mope being about it or something. I, I mean, it more like, just like, why are you doing it? You know, what do you, where, where does it hurt? And what do you long for? So both there, I would say that. So the motivation, you know, is there and real. And then I would uh, encourage people to find something that really feels good. <laughs> so you're drawn to do it. Uh, it feels good in the for the minute or five minutes or forty minutes you do it that it just it feels good. It's calming. It's restorative. Feels like home, and you're gonna you like it, and it it it, it adds value to you. It it it's good for you. I think that's really a very important thing. I think another thing that's really important is to, gosh, include the body. And, and to feel the body. I mean, well, I could go into detail about some things that I think are really effective for people kind of quickly. I'm wondering, who, who did you have in mind, Cassidy, in a sense, or a kind of person, or? Yeah, you know what? I have two kinds of people in mind um, because I think about the person who this conversation is so overwhelming for and so, off the grid on both the, what they have time for. So uh, something you just mentioned recently is even a minute is something and honoring that minute is something. Um, something for the person completely overwhelmed and when they do finally have that minute or that five minutes, they don't know what to do. Yeah. Um, and then I'm also thinking about the person that is just so distracted by being boxed into something that they, they choose to not do anything. Uh, what comes to me about this is there's the, there's the sense of finding your footing. How good does it feel to find your footing when things are rattling you? First and foremost, find your footing. Or in the language of developmental psychology, like every child needs to have a secure base 
And if you don't have that sense of secure base in your relationships, it leads to insecure attachment, which is problematic. So you, in healthy relationships, there's that sense of a secure base that you move out from. I'm a longtime rock climber, and you want to move from one stable hold to the next, uh, even if the width of the hold is smaller than a pencil or even a pencil lead. The other sense of it is home, coming home, to come home to yourself, to find your footing, over the course, honestly, of a single breath, we know what that's like, just what's it like to be me? And then in the middle of all that, finding what feels like refuge, stabilizing, protective, refueling, renewing refuge. And, and that, that feeling of home, of refuge, can be found in a dozen or less seconds. And then we build out from there. Um, so I, I'll talk in that way. Then I would ask people, what gives you that feeling? Um, you know, is it when your cat crawls in your lap? Is it when you finally get the kids in bed? Is it when you make it to the bathroom and you close the door behind you and you lock it? You know, at work, like, or maybe um, it's eating a big handful of M&Ms at the end of a really long day. I'm thinking of a client I had many years ago. Uh, so you find that and then you, you develop from there, I think. And then where it gets interesting, I think to your question, Cassidy, is help people have a sense of the feel goodness of it for a start and then to protect it and invest in it and then build out from there over time. I think of that. And then there's simple things that do that, uh, exhaling, naturally calming. Uh, I will, for many people, bring in a little bit of brain talk because it's motivating. It explains it, it makes it a hardware thing. Oh, okay, that's how the machinery works. I believe it. It's you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you physicalize it, it's real as if pain is not real <laughs> as an experience as obviously is pleasure. So um, I would do those things and then keep going. Uh, I would, I encourage people to try to reset to deep green. I use the metaphor of the green zone, the red zone, reset to deep green, at least for a minute a day. It's deeply important for physical health and longevity. It's important for relationships uh, and then grow from there. And I'm thinking of the title of Virginia Woolf's book, A Room of One's Own, mm -hmm. you know, the place for women's literature, A Room of One's Own, and, and to, it kind of to claim it, you know, wait, no, I, I, I'm claiming for myself this moment of quiet, speaking of silence. I just want to go back to the second part of Cassidy's question, which would be, Rick, tell us a little bit about your practice. Well, it's, it's motivated by this fundamental metaphor in Buddhism that your mind takes its shape from what it rests upon repeatedly. So what I want to rest my mind upon is what draws my heart. And to rest it upon or open into increasingly establish or live in or be lived by what most draws me at, at this point of practice. So when I um, practice and, and I'm, I'm meditative, probably as you are a lot of the time, 
uh, and then to really drop into it. So uh, fairly quickly stabilized my attention, you know, I'm stably present, body's calm, stably aware, and then increasingly uh, going into the field in effect and disengaging from, it's sort of like becoming the pond and disengaging from the ripples patterning its surface. It's that feeling of opening out into consciousness, the, by which I mean both awareness and its content together. And then more and more getting a sense of the ways in which this experience, this moment of experiencing is just a local quivering in the vast tapestry of reality. And, and then I, I start exploring an intuition of, or a feeling of, often I'll do this, of what is unconditioned, what is ultimate, what is infinite, kind of hang out there, <laughs> you know, a lot. Uh, oh, and I, I say also along the way, I, uh, with a deep, I think, knowledge of the vulnerable animal of the body, the soft animal of the body, as Mary Oliver, I think, put it. Uh, this body is just naturally freaked out a lot. So I try to really help it drop into these, these three fundamental qualities of peacefulness, contentment, and love, which intertwine and help the machinery of craving to come to rest because we feel needs met enough already in the moment. And, and so then, so peace, contentment, and love is a kind of in, a sort of commingling feeling, you know, it's sort of like warm-heartedness mingling with your peacefulness, uh, becoming a sense of contentment, craving falling away, grasping falling away, just here we are, and, and the moment arises, like, wow, 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 you know, again and again. Um, that That's very helpful. That's very calming. Yeah, I do that. It, it sounds like, very much like shinkataza, you know, just kind of a just sitting and just being in the body and resting. I mean, it's really the way it, it feels, the way you describe it. Well, it, there is a simplicity. You could say uh, in, in, in that personal practice and um, part of what I want to kind of underline though, I guess, um, it's kind of like this felt recognition of what's true. And in valuing that, I guess we practice what we value. So we have purposes in our practice of what do we value? And so for me, I, I value that releasing of the contraction of self and, and the sense of being the whole, being the whole field, really, and having insight into that again and again, that that's actually what we are. And uh, so yeah, so I, I'm agreeing with what you're saying, but I I'm, guess I'm trying to highlight the movement from the practice to the insight, I guess, mm. to what we, what we're learning from it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know. To me, practice, and love actually has been a really big, you know, I'm curious what you all would say about love and silence. That's interesting, right? Um, love and what's it like to be enlightened you know if we're already saved already enlightened what do you like when you're already enlightened okay that's a question 
what are you like when you're already enlightened, right? And then can we rest our mind upon that way of being? So increasingly, we are stabilized there. Yeah. You know, one, one of the things that I'm interested in is um, the relationship between silence and language. And I get probably all four of us share that interest in, in various ways. I mean, we're, we're, we're all writers and or poets and or photographer, filmmakers. So we're, we're all playing with that. So I guess I'm, I'm curious if we want to make it real prosaic and real nitty gritty, you know, your book, you, almost every section of your book, you include a recommended reading list. And it was really fun to see, to see some of the titles that you suggested. So I guess the question could be even as simple as where do you hang out? in your thoughts and your mind, your, the dharma of your language, your practice with language, to help create this kind of curious, gentle, relaxed, open, loving, not just mind, but being that you, you celebrate in the book. My friend Shana Shapiro um, quotes the monk who was her mindfulness teacher in Asia when she was a very young woman, that what, you pract what we practice grows stronger, for better or worse. If we practice resentment, we will become more resentful. If we practice love, we will become more loving, and we will feel more loved, actually, over time. And so I, I guess that's the short version for me. And um, you know the saying, neurons that fire together, wire together. So clearly, I, I'm extremely interested in the movement, to put it technically, from state to trait, uh, to appreciate the ways in which um, most of our experiences leave no lasting residues behind. They don't change the brain at all, so there's no learning from them. We don't develop or heal or grow or transform, or there's no formation in that Christian contemplative spiritual sense, let's say, from our experiences. They're passingly useful and nice, you know, wonderful, but uh, they don't really change you. So I'm really interested in helping myself be changeable uh, for the better, which includes, you know, uncovering what was already radiant beautiful and wise that was already there. So I guess I'm, I'm deeply interested in practice and the delta every day. Obviously there are pitfalls and aiming for what is, your, what is your growth today? Did you become a little more peaceful, a little faster to disengage from friction with your partner and your family members with whom you're cooped up these days due to social distancing? right? Shelter in place. Like, what's your practice? So that, I guess that's been really central for me, a kind of modesty and humility, like I'm on the trail. It's cool where it is. And, you know, it looks like there's another step to take. Can I help myself take that next step? Do I want to keep going? I see people farther along. I really like where I'm at, you know, and I could see that where I'm at is um, a lot happier, <laughs> a lot easier and less contentious with life, less friction with life than a year ago or certainly 10 or 20 years ago. So I kind of like what's happening and I, I like, oh yeah, I'm kind of interested in continuing. So that quality has been really central and I think it's really, rec I recommend it, you know, and uh, it goes to that fundamental question when people are having whatever experience they're having, including one of suffering, what's your, how are you practicing with that? not to blame the victim or to diminish the impact on them of the externals. It's not either or. It doesn't mean letting uh, injustice off the hook because I ask a question, you know, okay, how, how are you practicing with that? Or how would you like to practice with that? Or can I tell you anything that might be useful for you? 
in your practice of that? Or can I refer you to anyone who might be helpful for you in how you practice with that? So I guess practice is really central practice and honoring your practice. And, and retaining this for me was a little in, in embedded in what I was saying there with Cassidy a little earlier about claiming, claiming the your right to come home to deep green, to find your footing, to settle, to, to ground. You have the right to do that. There's a place where I've been reflecting lately. I've been at, I've been at it for almost 50 years, actually, uh, all told. You know, definitely I've been at it for that long, for better or worse. So Rick, oftentimes on the podcast, we ask if you have a silence hero. So someone maybe famous, um, maybe obscure, someone living or dead who truly embodies for you what the gift of silence is. Who is that and why? Well, um, the one that honestly came quickly to mind was the song by Simon and Garfunkel, The Sound of Silence, which was one of the very first rock songs I really enjoyed. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Uh, and, and that sense of silence, you know, the sound of silence. So that's, that's a kind of silence hero. Uh, more generally, uh, I would say wilderness is a silence hero for me. Mm, I you love know, that. Wilderness, untamed. Yeah, just the instantly I'm feeling what it's like to be in mountains as well as desert, the edge of the seashore, out on the, the ocean, wilderness, that kind of silence. And mm. how deeply important it is to protect it. And this brings us back to place. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. To what Cassie brought up earlier. Yeah. Hey, I'm I'm struck. You're the only person that I can think of right now. We usually ask this, and somebody runs to a person, you know, a famous monk or artist or something, and you went to either place or or a song. You you went to kind of a process. Wilderness and and music to me are process. They're living processes and it's like that's where you went which is interesting to me ah. yeah I, I think um yeah i'm just reflecting on this incredibly rich topic on i'm gonna go away and just be fed for quite a while uh, by this topic it's really profound uh for what it's worth uh, there's a sequence uh laid out in in from the Buddha, as best we know, in which he says essentially, you know, in terms of training, uh, steady the mind internally. These are the words that have survived. So steady the mind internally, quiet it, bring it to singleness and concentrate it. Concentration be moving into, I think what you would call illumination, these deep, deep, deep states of absorption, quiet it, you know, it's good. The Yoga Sutras, you know, yoga is the settling of the mind into silence. Right. You know, right. This, yeah, this so just keeps found. showing, it keeps showing up over and over yeah. and over again, this yeah. invitation. Yeah. I just want to say thank you so much, you know, for your time and, and for coming on. I, this area speaks to me. I mean, walking in, doing brain science and Buddhism, it's kind of what I was studying anyway, what I, you know, what I do, what I engage. But then you add in wilderness and I do a lot of outdoor time. Wilderness is a big theme for me currently. Well, you all take care. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. You all are just so much fun to hang out with. <laughs> and I just hang out.
are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. Thank you.